Roofing Mastery Podcast, episode number seven. Welcome to the Roofing Mastery Podcast. My name is Dylan McCabe, and in every episode, we give you a behind-the-scene look at the world of general contracting as it pertains to roofing, and we interview industry owners, CEOs, and experts so that you can have tips, tools, and a roadmap to be successful in your own general contracting business. And I am so excited about this episode because we have Wally Stein with us. He's been a general contractor in Kansas City, Missouri. He's done over 100,000 roofs since 1993. And I'm telling you, this guy leads his business unlike most owners of roofing or general contracting companies and roofers that I've talked to. He does not play any games. He has a unique perspective on how to set your prices, how to work with insurance companies, how to run your business. I mean, there is just so much gold you can mine from this particular episode. You're going to learn about AOB, lump sum contracts, taking things to appraisal if the insurance company even tries to negotiate with you, UPA, OSHA, code guidelines, manufacturer's guidelines. There's so much to get out of this. So let's just jump right into it in our interview with Wally Stein. All right, as I stated, we have special guest Wally Stein with Modern Concepts on the show today. Wally, thanks for joining us, man. Dylan Miller, thanks for having me. And the reason we were excited to have Wally on is because he is super detail-oriented when it comes to dealing with the whole insurance claim process, selling jobs. And really, you know, honestly, I'm I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say because I think I stand a lot to learn from what you've learned over the years. So before we jump into all that, just tell our listeners kind of who you are, what what your company is, and what your role in the company is. Um, I'm the managing director for Modern Concepts. Um, we've been in business since 1993. Um, used to have offices um, pretty much around the country. Used to storm. Uh, we're pretty much localized and stay in our our home market now in Kansas City. Gotcha. And I know one of the things we talked about offline was you'd mentioned to Miller that you've done a hundred thousand roofs. Yes. That's in our home market. That's in Kansas city. Wow. So it's way more than that nationwide then. Nationwide it would be. Yep. Wow. Yep. That's really something, man. In (laughs) 27 short years, that's a lot per year. Well, the industry's changed a lot now. Back in the day, uh, you could do a whole lot more roofs than you could uh, per year than you can nowadays, just due to the sheer amount of the roofers and labor shortages and things like that. So back in the 90s and early 2000s, you could definitely do a substantial amount of roofs per year. Huh. So it's really changed a lot. Just uh, you can't do them as quick as you used to, huh? You can, I don't know that you can maintain the quality and the labor that you could uh, uh, in the past due to just how many different roofing companies are out there. Uh-huh. That's kind of what we run into in Dallas, too. It's like, you know, my dad started in 92 and it was just wasn't that crowded. And now it's, oh, my goodness. I, I've heard numbers in the tens of thousands of roofers that we have in Dallas. <laughs> It's, it's just yeah you texas boys run a different game down there right? i don't know how y'all deal with it quite honestly oh man yeah it, it can be frustrating for sure i understand so are all of your roofs um is it primarily just hail work or is some of this real estate deals or people paying out of pocket or we don't do any new construction unless it's um um a previous client and they're building a new home. Uh, most of our roofs are, are, are storm restoration type work. Um, we do do a substantial amount of retail work. Uh, and that is something we have focused on since 19, um, or I'm sorry, 2012, uh, to get more into the retail side, not just in our roofing, uh, side, but our entire GC side. Uh, so as of to date, our, our revenue base is probably about 50% insurance and about 50% retail. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. So you don't have to have a hailstorm every year then to, to make a living. No, sir. No, sir. Well, that's it that's good. Yeah, it, it does help for sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so in uh, talking to you recently, one of the things that you brought up that I want to talk about, and I think there's a lot of buzz about right now is the lump sum contracts. And can you just kind of give us an overview of what that is and what your experience has been with it? 
Well, we have found that um, the insurance carriers train their adjusters on Xactimate and train how to deny certain Xactimate line items and break the protocol of Xactimate. Well, Xactimate is a tool. If it's used incorrectly, it's going to produce an incorrect number. So we decided uh, a couple of years back to just go to lump sum contracts. And this is our specification. We break down what we're doing and we provide uh, three different breakdowns for the carrier. And that would be equipment and supervision, material and labor. And those are the only uh, prices that we provide uh, with numbers and has a lump sum contract. And then we have payment terms, which for a insurance claim, which will detail the actual cash value, which would be the initial payment, the RCV value, which is the second payment. And then the third would be the supplement value. So our contract is, is clear cut. It, and a lot of people are talking about lump sum contracts, but then within the contract, they say we will accept what the insurance company offers. Well, the contract is clear then. It is based on what we call the known, the RCV. My number is not negotiable. This is what it takes to do the job, do the job correctly. And um, uh, our out for the carrier is appraisal. So we will accept our lump sum amount or the award issued by an appraisal panel per the policy provision, either one. Hmm. And so they don't, there's no violation of any laws by you saying, hey, it's this or appraisal, take it or leave it? No. Okay. You know, we're given, we're putting a dollar amount on the contract. If the carrier disputes that, the carrier has the right to invoke appraisal. Oh, okay, so they're the ones that are invoking it, then not the the homeowner. A lot of times, then. Uh, no, it's generally the homeowner, but the the carrier does have the right to invoke appraisal. And quite honestly, uh, in the past, the carrier was the one that would invoke appraisal the majority of the time. Uh, now, um, they don't want to go to appraisal because they know their scopes are, are incorrect. So, um, I think I've only been involved in two claims where the carrier actually invoked appraisal. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking back after our conversation the other day about some of the things we talked about way back in Florida. You know, you told me all kinds of stories about everything. And one of the things I had mentioned to you was appraisal. You know, and my dad had had success with that in Dallas, you know, going back to the early 90s as well. And you said, if you go to appraisal in Missouri, you lose. Am I remembering that right? Uh. I don't know that because back in 2004 and five, we didn't use appraisal very much in, in Missouri. We were not having the issues that we are currently having with the carriers. Mm -hmm. I don't recall that conversation. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I thought you had said something like that, uh, but I guess not. I think you're confusing it because one of my saying is, is if you litigate with a carrier, you're going to lose. It doesn't matter if you win oh, okay. or lose, you will end up losing by the time it's all said and done. Uh -huh. So I'm not a litigious person when it comes to litigating with carriers, although we do it every day. And we were successfully in setting a, a very good precedent in the state of Missouri about three weeks ago against auto owners and AAA. But um, uh, I'm not, I don't believe in, litigation. I think, I think I do believe in appraisal and that's what appraisal is for is to resolve a dispute to the value of a loss. It is supposed to be an informal, quick and inexpensive um, format to, to resolve that. So if the carrier plays by the rules, appraisal should be appropriate to resolve the, the value of a loss. Mm -hmm. So you had mentioned like the problem that you're having these days with uh, carriers being Overhead and profit or OSHA or? Well, all of the above. I mean, in our contracts, we don't we don't address overhead and profit anymore. It's built into our margin. That's one of the things with a lump sum contract. You know, it takes away the whole argument. Well, this claim isn't viable for overhead and profit. Although Xactimate protocol clearly states that overhead and profit should be uh, applied to the claim at the end of the claim. So it just eliminates that. It eliminates um, line item disputes, whether the starter and the hip and ridge 
are, are, are in the waste, which we all know it's not. We all know it's, it's a separate product. It has a separate cost. It has a separate yield rate. So when you go move to a lump sum contract, you eliminate those arguments. Um, you know, I can tell you the rebuttal to all of these arguments with the carrier, but it just gets tiring having to argue the same argument with the same adjuster over and over and over. Uh, and honestly, it, it's just a waste of time. It's a waste of time for the contractor. It's a waste of time for the adjuster. And it just gets confusing for the policyholder, which is a sad thing because we have a mutual client that we're both there trying to help. And uh, so we have just decided not to play the game with them anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of the point I've gotten to, too, is it's just you know, and they, they train new people. So now you have younger people that don't know anything. You got a 20 year old you're arguing with and you know, you've been doing it forever and they don't even understand what you're talking about. And it's like, I don't have time to to train them and fight with them. And, and the problem with this and what a lot of people don't know, and most States have, have adopted the Sparin doctrine. And if the homeowner produces the specifications or the plans for a project, i.e. an insurance scope, they are liable for the specifications as long as the contractor follows those specifications and the end product fails, i.e. they don't put starter or they actually use waste for starter and hip and ridge or they don't put the step walls in or what have you because it was specified that way. The homeowner is actually liable. That's Missouri law. In most states that I know of follow the Sparrow Doctrine, which was a, an award by the U.S. Supreme Court, I think, in 1918. So when you explain that to the homeowner that we need to get the specifications correct, how to do the project correctly, then the value of the project comes second. It, it's very important that they understand that. And it's very important that the contractors understand that too. So that's the first thing that I point out to them, that if I do the work per the specification, tear it off and put it back on two line items, then the product's going to fail. We all know that. And ultimately, the homeowner is responsible because they are the ones that supply, supply the specification. So that is that is our first step in getting the specifications of how to perform the repairs correctly. And I think in our industry, like you were talking about, we have 20-year-old kids that, that don't know anything about uh, the construction process. And if we get into a dispute for specifications, who are they? What, what authority, what training do they have to specify a project? Our first step is if you want to argue how the project should be done, we need to retain an architect to specify it. and We'll revise our bid to those specifications. Uh, and that kind of shuts that down with the carrier pretty quick. Hmm. Yeah. Well, let me, let me paint a picture here. If this is the right picture, <clears throat> are you telling are you telling us that you basically, let's say you've got a you've got a homeowner that says I I, I want to go ahead and file a claim. You go out, you inspect the roof, you do your your uh, you put your estimate together, and then you give that. And then if the carriers, if the if the insurance company says no, we're not going to do that. That's too high. You just immediately say, okay, we're going to appraisal. That is our next step. I ask okay. them point blank. Or we ask, you know, do we have a dispute to the value of loss? And um, yeah, then we go to appraisal. So how often do you have to take it to appraisal? I mean, I assume if you do this a few times after a while, they probably start to realize, hey, let's not get in a debate with this guy. (laughs) We go to appraisal a lot less now than we did um, five, six years ago. I assure you of that. Uh, And a lot of times when we evoke appraisal, that gets their attention and they'll come to the table and, and get reasonable. Um, the problem that we have with most of the carriers now is the insurance adjuster that you're dealing with, the desk adjuster or whoever's assigned to the claim, absolutely doesn't have the authority to allow the line items that we're asking for. They don't have the authority to add starter or they don't have the authority to put the appropriate overhead and profit on there. So you can argue this all you want. They're not going to break their job description or the authority they have. So ultimately, You've got to get it to a supervisor, and the only way to get it to a supervisor is the demand for appraisal. Interesting. Yeah, we have one that we we're going through right now that started out at about twenty four grand, and it looks like we may land somewhere just south of fifty grand after it's all said and done because we sent our initial supplement in. <clears throat> Insurance company said, "Nope, we've looked at that. We've looked at hundreds of roofs. We don't agree with any of these items. You know, UL listed caps and all this other stuff. No, 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 no." And Miller said, okay, we're going to take it to appraisal. 
And uh, a few weeks later, I mean, it's just, it's just a crazy thing. So, but what, what's your advice for guys that think, wow, that sounds like something I never do. It sounds like it's going to slow me down a lot. It sounds like, you know, is it even going to be worth it? Yeah, I'm going to be doing more for the homeowner, but is it going to be worth it for me and my time and my business? Well, the the big thing is, is, is if you're willing to roof the house for $24,000, just give them a $24,000 bid and move forward. If you're going to do the work right and you want to be compensated for what you do, then there's, and you're going to do insurance work, then there's steps you're going to have to take. And unfortunately, that includes appraisal. Unfortunately, that sometimes uh, includes litigating uh, uh, the issue. Um, we will always take the next best option in there. Um, we kind of turned the insurance carrier's claims procedures and turned them back on them. You know, here's my estimate. You provide me documentation that my estimate is wrong and I will correct my estimate. But other than that, that is our price. So we don't play the game where we send in code documents and all this stuff. Or, in, in all honesty, why is an adjuster writing a claim and doesn't know what is required by the municipality? Why should I, as a contractor, have to educate that person? That is not part of my job description. So the first thing we teach our clients and our reply to, hey, we need this code, is can we get an adjuster that knows what they're doing? Well, I mean, if you don't know how to write the scope correctly and write it to the bare minimum of construction standard, then you're probably not the guy for the job. And so we put a lot of the stops to the nonsense that goes on with inside of a normal claim. Uh, you can deal with the same adjuster, the same carrier, and they are going to ask you for the same code document from the same municipality a hundred times in one storm. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. They should get it one time and then it should be over with. It should be actually written within their scope. The adjuster's job is to determine damage and then extend coverage. And, if there's coverage under ordinance and law and they're not extending it, they're not, they're not, they're not being correct to the homeowner. They're being disingenuous in the way that they're writing their claims. So we have just decided not to waste our time anymore and stop playing the game. In 16, I tracked my time on one American family claim just back and forth. And I spent 52 hours in the supplement process on one claim and moved it, and I'm pretty good dealing with a carrier, and I moved it about $200. We went to appraisal, and I think it moved over 22000 in our appraisal within a week. So what is your time worth? Why are we uh -huh. continually mm -hmm. wasting time dealing with someone that has no authority to write the estimate correctly, or, or even worse, doesn't have the knowledge to write the estimate correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. That's what it's come down to with me. It's like, how much time am I going to, how many phone calls am I going to make and emails and then follow up because they don't call you back. They don't email you back. And it's just like, okay, well, I'm just going to go around then. <laughs> I loved it back in the day when they would bring up complexity. Well, that, com that claim's oh, not yeah. complex enough. You know, uh, we're not including overhead and profit. And the truth of the matter is, the claim probably is not complex to me, but boy, it sure got complex when you got involved. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's they're not taking into account how more difficult they make the construction process yes. than just a normal spec or negotiated contract. And, and, you know, there's only so much time in a day. So if you're sitting there just arguing with carriers, um, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing in all, in all actuality. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's so true, man. Yeah, just a, a waste of time, a waste of effort. And it's like, you know, what you'd have to hire another person and pay them full time to just chase uh, insurance adjusters around to get them to talk to you on the phone about a claim. Right. And most, and most companies of any volume do have a supplement or an estimation mm -hmm. department or supplement department, and which is absolutely um, insanity, if you ask me, that you have to have those people on staff just to prove that ice and water shield is required in a municipality that has required it for 12 years. It, it, there's just something wrong with that scenario. And, mm -hmm. and uh, for us, it just, we just are not going to continue to, to go that process. Uh, and it, and it works for us because we, like I said, we will always take the next best option to, to, to protect our homeowner, to indemnify our homeowner, and make sure that we're compensated for the work that we've performed on the project. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that, yep. that leads me to another question because you said a phrase that's a hot topic, which is overhead and profit. Miller's going to ask a couple of more technical questions about roofing. Uh, but I, before we get to that, <clears throat> what is your take on overhead and profit? I mean, we, ju- we just had a call yesterday and the carrier said, well, uh, you know, everything seems to look pretty good. We got, we added a lot of stuff to the supplement. It, the, call, the call was going good. And Miller looked at me and he said, wait till we get to overhead and profit. <laughs> and I said, you know, the only last thing we have an issue with is that we just don't think we're going to be able to give you overhead and profit on the roof. So what do you guys do with overhead and profit? How often do you secure overhead and profit? What's your strategy with that? I mean, just give us some, let us mine some, some, some contractor gold here in this conversation on overhead and profit. I would say when we were using Xactimate and, and still in the overhead and profit argument, I would say we we're successful at getting overhead profit over 90% of the time. Um, the whole argument, which I, you just put a smile on my face saying, yeah, we, we fill a general contractor's warranted on everything else except the roof. How does, how does anybody come up with that conclusion? The roof is probably the most difficult, most dangerous, most important part of the project, but they feel that supervision and, and a, con, a general contractor overseeing that is not warranted. That's absurd. And then if we're going to randomly pick which trade shouldn't have overhead and profit on it, I'm going to pick the screens. You know, let's yeah. pick the, the least amount. You know, why is it always the 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 most expensive and most complicated trade? So so that doesn't it it just doesn't fly. And then when you think about how the overhead and profit works, Xactimate is based on a material. It's a it's a bottom up platform and a top bottom. They've they've morphed two ways to create an estimate, and both of those ways are not a hundred percent. Those are for budgetary purposes, so they're not exact numbers. And and there's a great video that was just released um, that an interview with the president of Xactimate about three weeks ago, and he's very clear about this. And he says that you know insurance companies that are doing this are not using the exact way the way it's intended. Um, and they're actually outside of the terms of use of the program. But, you know, if you think about Xactimate, they have true material cost in it. And then they have the labor rate, which has the, the labor burden and markup. Even if you were to take a labor uh, a pricing survey from Xactimate, it's only on the labor portion. It is not on the material. So there's absolutely no markup on material within Xactimate. The markup is the overhead and profit that's supposed to be applied at the end of the claim. And then there's another error with inside the Xactimate system. Most contractors pay their general liability insurance and percentage on the gross sell amount. That is, that is addressed on the labor portion. It is not addressed on the material portion. So in all actuality, there should be overhead and profit applied to the claim. Then there should be a gross general liability percentage applied to the material portion of the claim to cover that portion of the cost of the contract. Mm-hmm. And you add that into your estimates? Our, it is Ours is just broken in. We run on a, a cost plus margin uh, blanket estimate um you know the policy reads that they owe for fair market value um i fill with the amount of roofs that i do in in kansas city and not just roofs but all the other work that i'm within fair market value because we don't change our pricing structure whether it's retail or insurance we have one um i'll give you a story last year i roofed a house it was about fifteen thousand two hundred dollars if i remember the contract price no later unfortunately the house got hit with baseball size hell and about three days later, and the carrier comes in with a $9,000 estimate. The homeowner just paid $15,200 for that roof. What is the fair market value for that roof? This is non-negotiable. It was just paid. It's three days old. So it, That was a fun thing to do. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> right. It, 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 no, it's it's absurd on, on how they, they react to some things. But you know, if you go with the complexity argument, okay, the claim's got to be complex. Let's just throw Xactimate protocol out and say that it's got to be complex. Who gets to choose the complexity? Is it the adjuster? No. Show me the policy where he gets to choose the complexity. Is it me? No, I'm not the policyholder. If we're going to base it on complexity, it is the policyholder. 
I'm a contractor. I've done hundreds of thousands of these. This claim is not complex to me. If it's complex to the adjuster, again, he's probably not the right adjuster for the job. Who it is complex to is the doctor, your client, that knows nothing about construction. So he has the right as a policyholder to hire a general contractor. And if he chooses to do so, then general contractor overhead profits should be applied to the claim, period. It, it, not a portion. And, and I love it when they, they break the roof out or something like that. And, and essentially, the carrier's done your job or done the appraiser's job because they've already admitted that a general contractor is warranted. Now we're just dealing with a dispute as to the value of the claim. So um, it, it's, it's really just ridiculousness, really. Yeah, and the whole evolution of overhead and profit too. You know, it used to be when I started in 03, it was there's three trades, you get overhead and profit. And right. then all of a sudden that changed. Well, if there's a leak inside, then then we pay overhead and profit. And then it's, well, is there coordination? Well, is it complex? Well, are there intermingling of trades? It's like every few years, all of the insurance companies kind of say the same excuse about why it's not warranted. And it's well, just, the three trade the three trade portion in exact may come from uh, came from a judgment I believe in Oklahoma uh, that the course ruled that three trades would warrant a general contract, uh-huh. and then I believe that that was uh, there was another ruling in Tennessee that contradicted that. So we had the three trades going for us, and then we had another ruling in Tennessee that contradicted it. But the truth of the matter is, is I do like the complexity portion of it. If the homeowner wants to be the general contractor, then per exactimate protocol, general overhead and profit should be applied. If the homeowner wants to be the general contractor of it, then I can see where overhead and profit wouldn't be applied. But the other problem we have with that scenario is the policy and the premiums are are calculated with overhead and profit. Exactly. Being in there. So there. So they're charging the homeowner premiums for for the use of a contractor but that aren't willing to pay for the use of a general contractor Uh when they have a loss and i have a hard time is what we call claims procedures have a hard time dealing with the internal claims procedures that are not in the policy and my my client my policyholder didn't agree with you can't change the rules after the fact the rules are what's in the policy and that is the playbook and that's what we go by Mm-hmm. Yeah, Texas has a bulletin about that, talking about how uh, you know you're collecting premiums for which your loss may never be paid if you don't pay right. overhead and profit. Right. It's like we show that to insurance companies, and they don't care. They're just right. like, ah, oh, well, and it's just again yeah. that everyone in the industry is searching for this magic pill, and there's no magic pill. The problem is if the carrier is going to be disingenuous in the way that they are going to scope the claim then there is, no, there is no argument, there's no documentation, there's nothing that is going to change that value of the claim outside of appraisal. And mm-hmm. so I am a big proponent for appraisal if the carriers play by the rules, which now the carriers are starting to stop, they're starting to alter that. But um, there's no way to get over or get something changed if they're just going to be disingenuous in their actions so Mm -hmm. yeah so what do you think about the aob's assignment of benefit uh deal they've started up in the past few years um i'm conflicted actually do we use assignment of benefits yes in in rare rare instances if there becomes a a situation where i have indemnified the homeowner perform the repairs the carrier uh does not want to pay me and my client does not want to stay with inside the fight, then I will take an assignment of benefits. I am not a fan of assignment of benefits before the client is indemnified. Um, And the reason why is it opens up a huge potential of fraud. And so I do believe that, that there is a, there is a proper and a correct scenario for it. Um, And, and I don't see why I would put one of my clients through the nonsense that the carriers want to play after they are indemnified. That's what, if I can't collect my money from the carrier, then that's my responsibility. But, um, uh, so that's my opinion on the assignment of benefits. I don't think they're the holy grail that are being preached uh, by some mm-hmm. people in the industry. Um, and I do believe that we're going to see 
sweeping legislation throughout the country, just like we saw in Florida um, here within the next few years. And, and what's funny is, is the carriers keep trying to regulate the industry to benefit them. And every time they create more regulation, all it does is increase the cost of construction. And, and the carriers are now reaping what they sowed in Florida <laughs> is, is the problem. So, um, but I, I, I think there's a right scenario for the assignment of post-claim benefits. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. I, when I first saw it, I was really excited, but you know, it kind of has fizzled, you know, it was like all the buzz there for a while and it's kind of fizzled out a little bit. You still hear a little bit about it, but not well, like what it was in the beginning. It, the, the main reason why you've seen it fizzle is again, if you have a carrier that is not playing by the rules, you can send them a legal and binding uh, assignment of post-claim benefits if they don't honor it, it's not worth the the piece of paper that you 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 got right. written. So I, I tell any contractor that I talk to, if you're going to sign in an assignment of post claim benefits, you might as well have your attorney on retainer because you're going to end up litigating that assignment of post claim benefits. And don't send one in and what unless you're willing to take the yeah. next best option, because the carriers know they track you. You send in threats of appraisal, you send in this, you send in that, and you don't follow up, they know that all they have to do is tell you no, and they'll move on. So whatever whatever you send in should be should be right. And and you better be willing to back it up and prove that you will. So you were saying a few years ago you had y'all were doing a lot of appraisals, right? Mm-hmm. Like four or five years ago all the time. And so how long did it take for you just going to appraisal every one when they're they're not doing the right thing. How long did it take before they months. kind of months? So it they wrote in their they wrote in their notes. Okay, he will go to appraisal and he will win. So yep. you better pay him. And if they say that they're you know State Farm right now has got this thing where they're saying they're making everything a coverage or a causation issue, and I'm not sure. I think Texas is a causation state. Missouri is a causation state. We even just said another precedent, very large one in, in Missouri, that is very clear about about what is appraisable and everything. So, you know, you got to be willing when you send in the appraisal and you get that thing saying, oh, no, this is a, a scope issue, so it's not appraisable. Well, of course it's a repair methodology issue. That's what's wrong with your scope. You omitted reasonable and necessary line items. Yeah, I mean, we had AAA telling us that overhead and profit and supervision was a coverage issue. Are you kidding me? The policy says we agree to insure the dwelling. You extended coverage to the dwelling. That's the entire dwelling. It is not supervision, overhead, and profit, or even building components that you extended coverage. The coverage portion of the claim has been resolved. So, yeah, you know, it's it's funny how they come up with these things, but even sending in, a, in an appraisal now, you have to be willing to uh, uh, file uh, with a court of jurisdiction to appoint an umpire and and even willing to to litigate that because State Farm and some others will try to to flip that administrative order into a into litigation. So you need to be willing to go that far or don't don't invoke appraisal because the second that you don't back it up, they know and mm-hmm. they'll, they'll do it every time. Well, you okay. clearly <clears throat> you clearly know a lot about even the legal issues involved and different rulings and stuff like that. You know, I'm sure there's some people listening to this to go, well, yeah, this is, this is easy for Wally. Cause he knows his stuff. This guy's well-educated on this. What, what's a resource or just a, a helpful tool that you use to get equipped and educated on this, to have more knowledge and more confidence that you can actually go through the process and be successful. Well, the thing I tell everybody is take a proactive approach about your career. Spend at least 30 minutes every single day reading about your trade. And I do. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I may be different in the fact, but I actually like reading court rulings. And and it, there there was a case in Minnesota that, that changed the way we deal with things. And they had sued State Farm uh, trying to recover the overhead and profit. And although the judge agreed with the plaintiff, the contractor, he awarded for the carrier because they reduced their estimate or they reduced their invoice to get the depreciation withheld. So as soon as they reduced their invoice, they, they settled the claim. So just because rulings don't seem that they're favorable, they can be favorable. 
and I read a lot. Uh, and I talk a lot with other contractors that are in the industry. Um, and we bounce a lot of things off of each other. Um, and we have spent a lot of money on legal fees, proven that we are right. And, um, but knowledge, knowledge is everything. And, and there is a way to educate your homeowner without violating UPPA laws. So, uh, you, yeah, I think you, that was Miller's next question. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, you can educate your homeowner on the claims process without talking the policy. And, and I have got to be even more careful because I am a licensed public adjuster. So you, you, you can explain the appraisal process. You can say that I'll accept an award issued by an appraisal panel. So those are things that you can say. You can put those in your contract, but you can't you can't talk about coverage or or other things like that. I mean that's the, the P word. Huh? The P word policy. Or negotiate. Yeah. That's yeah. the other thing. We don't negotiate our contract. I will I will alter the price of my contract if I may if something's in there in error or it's in there incorrectly, but but my contract price is my contract price. That's non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. It's contract. And the other thing is, is the payments and what's owed by the carriers when it's incurred, as soon as that contract was signed and accepted by the policyholder, the specifications for the job has ended and that money has incurred. They have, be, they have become legally liable for that, that money. So the homeowner or the, the insurance carrier owes what the contract is, as long as I am in fair market value, I'm the contractor. I'm the one that, you know, can prove fair market value with hundreds and thousands of other contracts that are, are either insurance or retail related. So the, the adjusters somehow within the industry, it has changed to where lines have got crossed and people are doing, trying to do three different jobs in, in one claim. And the adjuster's job and his sole purpose is to investigate, determine, and extend coverage. The contractor's job is the one to write the specifications and determine the price of, of what it takes to, to perform the repairs, not the adjuster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, the you know, I have a lot of some friends that are public adjusters and they tell me you can't even meet with an adjuster. And I'm like, why not? The adjuster and, is a guest on my job site. I'm the general contractor. Uh-huh. He is my guest. And he is my client's guest. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not going to have anybody on my job site without someone from my company there. Mm-hmm. So as soon as that homeowner represent, well, as soon as that homeowner contracts for you, with you, that is your job site. You are in control of that job site. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me of another thing about: Have you ever had insurance companies telling your insured, "Well, he's being unreasonable. I'm going to ask the homeowner to get more estimates." <laughs> yeah, just had that uh, yesterday with American Family. <laughs> oh boy. And they immediately got a demand for appraisal and said, well, if you want to get a third party uh, involved in, in the price, you're, you're missing the step, and that is appraisal. So, yes, I mean, the, 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 the difference with this is, is everybody's price is not the same. For a matter of fact, we can't even sit here and talk about what we should be charging and all that. That's price fixing. Everybody's price is going to be different. So what Miller can do a roof for is different than what, I can do a roof for Miller's overhead is not the same as my overhead. Miller's desired profit margin is not going to be the same as my desired profit margin. It's, it's absurd to think it would be. And, and, you know, not only that Miller's pricing is not going to be the same as my pricing, you know? So every contractor is going to be different. And Xactimate did a price study and they said that the difference between roofing estimates within a single market is a hundred percent. So if the bottom is 10,000, the top's going to be 20,000. So there's no, you know, that's a big discrepancy, but that whole $10,000 separation there is all within the fair market value. Mm -hmm. But insurance companies want to say it's whatever Xactimate says, everybody's working for the same price as what they want to, to tell us. The president of Xactimate made it very clear and said, Xactimate is not a global pricing. It does not fit every single scenario. It is not designed for that. And if you are using it that way, you're using the program improperly. 
And, and it can be. Every job is different. The concern to every homeowner is different. Um, the complexity of jobs are different. So there is not a single uniform price structure for every single job. It just can't. There's just not one. And then not only that, that's not even talking about market conditions. People say, do you raise your price during a hailstorm? Well, wouldn't it make sense? It only makes yeah. sense. Mm -hmm. As your schedule books up, the only way to lessen more jobs coming in and equaling it out so you don't book out too much is to raise your price. As your schedule drops down, the only way to book that schedule is to lower your price. It's no different than any other business in the industry. Car dealers offer rebates and do whatever when they're not selling enough cars. Those rebates, those special financing and stuff goes away when they don't have enough stock. So it, it's no different in the industry that if you have an unlimited amount of work coming your way, why are you putting bad work on your schedule? It's called a market condition. As market conditions are favorable to the contractors, price goes up. As market conditions are not favorable to the contractor, prices go down. It's that simple. So you can't use Xactimate as a global pricing system. It gives you a general budgetary idea of what the job should cost, but it's not it's not 100% accurate for every job. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of instances yeah. that Xactimate may be high, but... Um, it, it's not it's not a global pricing structure by any means. Well, it's like you said, it's a tool, and the tool is limited by the one who uses it. And it's and, and you know, getting into the price issue, I we interviewed Michael Stone with Markup and Profit in a podcast episode number six, and his whole thing. He's been in construction for over fifty years, and now he does coaching for contractors. And he said his number one advice for all contractors is look at the end of the year, look back on your year look at your profit and loss statement, analyze the numbers, look at your top line revenue versus your bottom line. And he said, then plan the next year, plan your margins accordingly, accordingly because you're in this to provide for your family. You're not right. in this to give away free services. And I thought it was so interesting. Then we got into this long conversation about price and how you sell on value versus price and stuff like that. But it encouraged me even because today I got a call from a guy, an insurance agent that sent me a lead. And he said, hey, here's a guy that, that filed a claim and uh, I want him to, to have you go check his roof out. So I talked to this guy and the guy says, hey, I'm happy to talk to you. You know, this insurance agent said you'd be great to work with. I've already had one contractor come out and look at the roof, but I just want to make sure I'm getting, you know, all the information I can. In other words, get bids. I said, hey, that's great. I uh, you know, really appreciate that insurance agent. I said, but I'll tell you, we've been in business over 25 years. We've done thousands of jobs. We're going to give you world-class customer service. Here's a story of a job we just did where we knocked it out of the park for the customer. The customer's happy. We're happy. I said, but but I don't want to get in a bidding war with another general contractor. I said, then it just turns into a race to the bottom, and you can go and find some other contractor in town that's going to do it cheaper. And I said, we're not here to be the cheapest. We're here to be one of the best. And he said, right. okay, well, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm not looking for you to, you know, take it to the last $10 or anything like that. And I said, okay, good. You know, I just want to set expectations. You know, we're not right. going into this to be the cheapest game in town. And, uh, and tomorrow I'm expecting to get a signed contract and do the job, you know, for what, for our margins, for our price, doing it the right way. Right. And, and, there, and there is a, there's acceptable uh, instances and, and contractors, a contractor that just opened up and is trying to make a name, he can be at that $10,000 price. Say, I'm with you. We've been in business 28 years. I don't need to be there. We're up here. I mean, it, there, there's a difference. And we provide a service for what we're doing. So, uh, you know, there, there is a, a, a huge value to peace of mind. And, and when you're able to provide that peace of mind to your client, clients will pay more for that. Uh, I will pay more for a better service than I will anytime. I mean, I don't drive a Yugo. So it, it's one of those things where people will pay for the service. People will pay for the knowledge. Knowledge, um, uh, you know, a lot of people and a lot of uh, the trading seminars and everything, they'll talk about what does it take to make a sell? And they'll say a solution. That is the, the only answer really is you got to provide the solution and that's through knowledge. When you, when you provide the correct knowledge and answer the correct questions and provide the correct solution, that client's not going with anybody else. Um, and the other thing, if that was an insurance restoration job, the first thing I would have told them is, is why are you shopping price? Everybody's price is the same. 
There's no difference between the bottom barrel price and the top price. They're all the same. It is your deductible, period. So, you know, we can talk about the correct specifications and we can do the work correctly or the only way to lessen that 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 claim is to pull out line items out of that scope and not do the job properly. So do you want the job done properly? Then I'm your guy. If not, there's a million other contractors out there that'll do it incorrectly, I guess. But, um, you know, price is irrelevant. Everybody's price is the same. Mm-hmm. And depreciation is your friend, as you told me in 2005. And depreciation <laughs> is your friend. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, they, <laughs> I forgot I told you that. But yes, yeah, you, I remembered it all these years, man. That's been a good one. But they, you know, they, they, you know, when you're dealing when you're dealing with consumers, we try to educate the consumer about the construction process. We also educate them. You know, somewhere in the industry, it went from you're you're a contractor to where we'll take care of everything. We'll take care of the insurance. We'll deal with this. We'll negotiate with the carrier. We'll. We'll do all this. That is incorrect. We we let the carry we let the homeowner know that this is their claim, this is their policy, this is their home. We can show you the construction process of what it takes to to repair your home correctly. But when your when your insurance carrier calls me, I'm going to conference you in. You know, if if you know every email that is sent, we carbon the homeowner on that email so they know what's going on and we actually let me reverse that we carbon the insurance company on the email we're sending it to our client you know there, there was one um, thing on the level of the playing field where they were talking about what do you do when they ask for sub invoices that's the most ridiculous thing i've ever heard i in my contract it doesn't say i have to disclose sub invoices to my consumer the policy holder nowhere in the policy does it say they have to produce sub invoices I invoice my homeowner, my homeowner provides that documentation to the carrier. There's no, I mean, it amazes me that very intelligent people will take directive from a third party that has absolutely no authority over them. It's, again, just amazing. So, you know, stay in track, deal with your client, teach your client that, that you need, you may need help, you know, you may need to get on a phone call, we may need to, 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 to do that. And if not, you know, we always have the option to go to appraisal. Mm-hmm. So what do you tell the insurance companies when they want your sub bids? I don't get asked that question. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> I would start laughing. That is, that is the most, because again, I don't invoice the carrier. We invoice the homeowner and we carbon copy the carrier on it. So uh, my reply would be call your policy holder. Why are you calling me? I mean, that is, that is a ridiculous question. We don't entertain ridiculous questions. Well, let me ask another <clears throat> strange uh, question that's strange to me. I'm coming from the outside in, right? I've been in business development for years, online marketing and stuff like that. So I come into the roofing industry and start working with Miller. And one of the things I noticed is that we'll go look at a roof and it doesn't look like there's much damage on it. Insurance company pays for it. We go look at another roof. It's just all beat up insurance company goes, oh, there's not enough damage. So how many roofs are getting paid for that shouldn't? And how many roofs are not getting paid for that should? Uh, Let me answer the first one. How many roofs are getting paid for that shouldn't? A strong majority that, that have, and, and you're talking, when I say that, and you're talking to a person that does not believe that most composition uh, roof assemblies are repairable. So, there are a lot of roofs that have absolutely zero damage or, or virtually no damage that are being paid for. Um, I would say 50% of the roofs that we roof based on, ins- on insurance funds are not damaged. And we were brought in after the fact. I mean, I am very adamant that we don't file or, or recommend to file frivolous claims. So, but that's not the norm in our industry. Our industry is, is let's throw darts on a wall and then we're going to get bad adjusters. And, you know, we're going to pick up 25 to 50% uh, through bad adjusting. That's ridiculous. And that's something the carriers need to address. I, I had a conversation with State Farm, one of the higher ups at State Farm, and I, and I made it very clear. And they looked at me like I was crazy. Why, do you, why don't you just stop paying for roofs that you don't owe for and then pay the correct amount of money for the ones you do? 
and I guarantee you they would end up ahead. But um, again, that comes to the old um, the saying I was saying about staying in our lane. We're not the adjuster. We don't extend coverage. So if you're going to extend coverage, then we're going to roof it. But I would advise to the carriers to, to relook at how they adjust their claims and look at their protocols because a lot of rust that are not damaged are being bought. And that's been the way for forever. I, I would say the majority of Pensacola was purchased because of FEMA. But, um, oh, you know, the blue, the blue roofs, yeah. The blue roofs. You oh, pull yeah. them off, there wouldn't even be a shingle missing. But, um, you know, there, there's that, that, but that's the carrier again doing what they do. And, you know, how do you stop it? How many rusts do I think in the industry anymore are, are being denied or not paid for uh, that should be paid for? Uh, I would say that number is very small for the fact that the contractors in the industry has gotten more educated. Do I think they've been denied or there was a fight to it? Yes. But I do believe that there's a lot of uh, uh, very savvy contractors out there that know what the next best option is. Uh, and will take that fight to the carrier and, eventually get that roof purchased for the for the homeowner so interesting yeah just as an outsider coming in it that's been one of the things that's boggled my mind the most and i just call foul because it was the same when i was in uh, health in the healthcare world you've got healthcare insurance companies making policies for patients on what kind of drugs they should and shouldn't be able to receive and how they have to try this drug first and if it doesn't work then you can step it up to that drug and all this stuff and it's like wait a second these guys aren't doctors why, right. why are they making policies? And it's the same thing in this, in the world of uh, construction and contracting. It's like, wait a second. Well, why are they making the decision on this? But, right. um, well, let's, let's switch gears and, and get into what's changed with, you know, at the time of the recording of this podcast with the COVID pep epidemic and stuff like that. What have you guys done to generate leads? I mean, every general contractor needs reads, storm contractors needs leads. We all got to keep the business, new business coming in. Yes, of course, we have our customers and stuff like that. But what do you guys do as far as online marketing or lead generation to keep the, the sales machine going? Well, we did respect the quarantine. When, when they issued the quarantine, we did close down. So uh, I might have been one of the few contractors that did. When I said that, if we were invited on the, on the property or, or we were had contracts with clients and they were okay with us fulfilling those. That's fine. But we do, we do canvas and we do other marketing and we did not, we did not do any of that during the, the quarantine. Um, we don't do a whole lot of online marketing. We don't do a whole lot of advertising. Most of our business is from previous clients, referrals, and quite honestly, just, just doing the job, right. Uh, you, you do the job, right. You look better than everybody else. The neighbors do hire you. So that's our, our scheme. We used to advertise quite a bit and we have found that, that when we don't need the leads, that's when they were coming in. And, and when you need the leads, they're not coming in. So uh, our advertisement budget is, is very small. Um, most of the, most of that goes to charities and things like that, sponsoring teams or what have you. But um, we don't have a very large online presence. Um, I say that I, I think our Facebook page has, 8,000 likes and what have you, but we don't really push a lot in, in that aspect. Yeah. Well, that's a lot. 8,000 likes is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I had a feeling you'd say something like that. Uh, I told Miller, I said, I bet he doesn't do a lot of online marketing because you probably get a lot of referral business. I mean, it's clear that you want to do a stellar job for your clients and, um, yeah, so just while, you know, the, our passion with this platform is to equip people through these podcasts in the areas of leadership, sales, and marketing. And the more effective you are at the leadership and the sales side, the less you have to spend on marketing. That's correct. You know? And it's interesting, too, in Dallas, because being such a big market, if a big storm comes through, everybody starts spending money on online marketing and ads, Google ads, and stuff like that. So it becomes way more competitive. The calls per click is a lot more and like that. But then when there's no storm, like you said, that's when it's easier to get the leads and stuff. So it's, it really takes a strategic approach, but uh, Miller, do you have any other, other questions you wanted to ask? Yeah. I was wondering about uh, code stuff like uh, code uh, enforcement or code requirements where there is no code and also how that relates to uh, code versus manufacturer specifications for 
installation procedures. This is one of my favorite subjects when it comes to carriers here. There's, the carriers have created this urban myth that unless the code is enforced, then it's not viable. And the reason why this is, is um, increased cost of construction or ordinance and law, however it's worded in the policy, will say, we'll pay for the increased cost of construction due to any code that is enforced at the time of loss. So they focus on the word enforced. The problem is, if the code is adopted, it, the mandate in the chapter one, I think it's 104.2, directs the code official to enforce the code to the intent of the code. So, and it doesn't matter if it's a repair, renovation, what have you. And then I think 105.2 in the code book is work exempt from permits. The first thing it says, any work exempt from permits does not allow the person to perform the work outside of the intent of the code. And then 113.1 of the code, unlawful acts, says that anybody that performs a repair, renovation, or what have you, outside of the intent of the code has committed an unlawful act. It, and it also says, or make so happen. So I've always been curious if the adjuster doesn't write a scope correctly or to code, did he make it so happen for work to be performed and commit an unlawful act? But anyway, so if there's an adopted code, then it is enforced. But then we have the problem that, and I'm pretty sure every state has the same laws, that any construction contract entered into whether expressly implied or written into the contract, it is in the contract that all work has got to be done to a workmanlike manner. And that's industry standard by a skilled uh, a workman of, of average skill. So when you say industry standard, we'd have to fall back to what is industry standard? Well, industry standard would be at least the code the code is the ICC code would be the industry standard. That's the bare minimum of construction standard. And quite honestly, if you rough or build to the code, you're a pretty crappy rougher and a pretty crappy builder because that's the bare minimum. And the carriers are actually asking us to go below the bare metal. Hmm. But then if you were to go to industry standard, that would be manufacturer specifications, which is going to be higher than the code. The, the specs on that are going to be higher than the code. You cannot do any work on a property and do it in a workmanlike manner and install it outside of manufacturer specifications. Where they're confusing things is, is they're trying to imply that there's no coverage because of an ordinance and law issue. That is absolutely incorrect. That is not what ordinance and law is for. Ordinance and law is for uh, something that is undamaged or something that is missing. So let's talk about ice and water shield. You have ice and water shield. They don't have ordinance and law in the policy, but that they're saying we don't know for it because they don't have ordinance and law. It's absolutely incorrect. That's under the dwelling coverage. That is manufacturer specification in the northern market to apply ice and water shell at the eaves. One would have to assume that when that roof was done, it was done to manufacturer specifications, uh, the previous roof. So like kind of quality would be the manufacturer specifications today. It has an underlayment under on it, correct? So ordinance and law would not be be the correct coverage to apply that to. We're just dealing with a different underlayment. The manufacturer specifications have changed. They have increased. So we're putting on an underlayment. There was an underlayment there. It's just a different kind of underlayment. So whether they enforce code and all this stuff, that's that's absolutely ridiculous. If they have code, it is enforced. It is a law. It's part of the law. Just because you got caught or, or you do it, do it outside of code and whatever and you didn't get caught, that doesn't mean that it's not enforced. It just makes you a good criminal. So. So we don't play that game either. Again, if a carrier or an adjuster calls us and asks us to send them code documentation or what have you and so on and so on, we simply have our homeowner request an adjuster that knows what they're doing and knows the requirements of the municipality of where their home is at. I don't think that's unreasonable for a policyholder to have an adjuster that knows the requirements of the municipality of where the where the property is at. Um, so we don't get into those issues. And, and I'll go as far as to say, we write our, our contracts to the work we are doing, to the manufacturer specifications. I really don't care if there's seven vents. If, if our software says we don't use vents, we use ridge vent, but our software calculates the ventilation. It automatically puts it in the contract. I don't care if there's six vents or 
whatever, if it's requiring 18 vents, 18 vents are going on there. If it's requiring 120 foot of intake vent, it's going on there. Every single one of our roofs has intake vent and exhaust vent paid for the carrier, whether they have ordinance and law or not, because it's manufacturer specification. I don't know what the manufacturer specification was at the time that roof was roofed last time, mm -hmm. but that's there. And, and then the carriers will argue, well, that's betterment. Are you kidding me? The inception of the RCV provision in the policy was a betterment policy. It is a betterment. You are trading old for new. That is a betterment. So when they say they don't know for betterment, that's exactly what an RCV policy is, is a betterment policy. So I love the code thing. It's, it's, it's laughable to me. Mm -hmm. So you, you told me the other day, synthetic felt is required by the manufacturers. Well, I'll ask you, R904.2 compatibility material, and it states something to the extent that all, all materials have got to be compatible with each other. I will ask you to call JF, Certainty, or Owens Corning, any of the majors, and say, hey, I am going to use a Tamco saturated 15-pound asphalt felt, which 15-pound asphalt seems to be the default. I, it, you know, that's on every single claim. Call JAF and ask them, can I, is, is 15 pound Tamco felt compatible with a Timberline shingle? They're going to tell you no. You know why? Because they don't test for it. Mm -hmm. So they can't tell you it's compatible. So then I asked the carrier, well, you have a certain teat on there. You have Owens Corning, you have a JAF. I can't put a 15 pound asphalt on it because they don't make it. They only make fiberglass felt or synthetic on up. And actually, their fiberglass asphalt felt is more expensive than their synthetics. So it's actually least ex it's, it's, it's less expensive to go with a synthetic than it is a saturated asphalt felt. Every single one of our contracts lists CertainTeed Roof Runner or CertainTeed Diamond Deck, depending on the application. We don't even entertain the, the felt argument because we can't put it on. CertainTeed does not make a saturated asphalt felt. Wow. And then one other question. Uh, I've got a job coming up. It's got spaced uh, sheathing or one by eight shiplap or something on there. What what do I need to do to get that redecked? Again, that's another uh, confusion on coverage issues. A lot of carriers like to say that that is a, a ordinance and law issue if they don't have ordinance and law and try to put push that cost into the ordinance and law issue. It's not it's not part of ordinance and law. It's part of the dwelling coverage. It's part of the structure. The, the definition of a roof assembly is from the decking on up. The structural portion is from the rafters down. So uh the code has went as far as from 2012 to 2015, I think the revision was made, to, uh, in definitions, put, I think it's called roof replacement. And it says uh, roof replacement is replacing the roof assembly along with any damaged or deteriorated substrate. So now, under definition, it's defined in the code book. But it's always been defined under the roof assembly definition as the deck and all other materials going on up. So when they extended coverage to the roof assembly or the dwelling as a whole, they've already extended coverage to the deck. So if you have a quarter of an inch gap, and I always tell people, carry your framer pencil because that's actually a measuring tool. The, the skinny side is a quarter of an inch. The, the long side is a half inch. So if you can stick a framing pencil in the gap, that's got to be redecked. It's non-negotiable. That is the definition of space decking, hmm. anything over a quarter of an inch. And, and some manufacturers have different guidelines on that. Certainty does not allow any de solid board decking to be over six inches wide. So if it's over six inches wide, you technically have to cut that board without cutting the rafters. Um, and I think Owens Corning and JAF have some kind of wording on the width of the decking also uh, on solid board decking. So yes, they owe for the decking. It, it is there. It is manufacturer spe specification. It is not an ordinance and law or an increased cost of construction issue. It is part of the roof assembly. The roof assembly is a singular unit. It is not a bunch of building components. It is a singular unit once it's installed, and that does include the decking. Um, and we don't argue that often with this. This is pretty much a given for us. Um, uh, and we are very successful for it. For a matter of fact, it was pretty funny. If you get on my Facebook page, I got a, a, a voicemail from a state farm adjuster a couple of years back. And actually, it was so humorous I had to post it. And it was dealing about the decking situation. So, 
<laughs> but, oh man! Um, <laughs> it it it. Uh, but no, the the problem with with the decking is is they're trained to think that it is a separate. It's a separate component from the roof assembly. It is not by by definition. And then if you went to the manufacturer specification, everybody knows that we have to have a solidly sheet deck that can that can hold an L. But it 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 the coverage is under the dwelling, so they owe for it. Okay. Well, I'm going to try that. I'll let you know how it goes. Okay. I'll help you out if you have problems. On okay. All right. <laughs> I'll have to renew my Texas PA license, but we, we can come down there and help you out on that one real quick. All right. That sounds good, man. Uh, all right, Dylan, you got anything else? And I think that's it, Wally. Thank you so much for, for joining the show. I knew this was just going to be getting lots of gold, lots of great insight from this, uh, this interview. Do you have any parting <clears throat> parting, a parting piece of advice for any contractors listening to this saying, okay, I feel like I just got a kick in the seat of the pants. I want to take it to the next level. What's a parting piece of advice? I would strongly uh, recommend to people to abandon exact domain, exactly, especially when we're dealing with simple residential health claims. And I would go to a lump sum contract. I would um, break out the payment terms, an ACV and RCV or whatever your payment terms wants to be. Put the supplement in as a supplemental payment due upon when released by the carrier. Um, I would stop taking directives from a third party that has no authority over me. You don't work for the carrier. You work for the homeowner. So when they call you and ask for a photo of this or a photo of that, charge them. I mean, it's it's not there. But I, I would I would stop playing their game because the more you play the game the more you have to play the game when you set the precedent saying this is my price my price is based on material it's based on labor with my margin and here it is and it was agreed to by the policyholder and and go from there i i just feel that as contractors as a whole we waste a lot of time playing this nonsense and it gets frustrating and not only does it get frustrating for the contractor it gets frustrating for the policyholder i i have found that my policyholders like our process that as soon as there's a dispute there's no going back and forth hey let's go to appraisal if the carrier's right they're going to win an appraisal correct so why would they not welcome appraisal exactly yeah And, and so take the stress out of your life is would be my recommendations <laughs> that's awesome man well wally stein with modern concepts thanks again for joining the show man we sure appreciate it yeah, yeah thanks exactly. yeah thanks wally it was great talking to you great to see your face again it's been a few yeah. years good to see you again miller all right man right. thanks okay we'll see you bye. bye all right that concludes our interview with wally stein was your mind not blown like mine was i, I was just amazed at the way wally runs his business and for those of you that wish you had a pen and pad out to take notes, we will have the entire transcript of that podcast like we do every podcast on our website. Just go to roofingmastery.com, look up episode number seven. You're going to get the audio, the video, and uh, you will also have the entire transcript. Now, the transcript is recorded by software, so if there's any little you know, grammatical errors there, it's because of the software. But we will have the entire transcript so that you can go and go back and look at those notes. Guys, if this has been helpful to you, please go to iTunes and rate and review. It's a way to say thank you, and it's a way for us to get the word out. And also, if you're looking for somebody to come alongside you with your online marketing, managing your reviews, making sure you have an automated system there, helping you rise to the top amongst other competitors online for your business, give us a call. Go to roofingmastery.com. And also, don't forget about our monthly webinars. We've got one right now about how to automate customer feedback and turn that into referral business in an automated system that we also use at Rain Tight General Contracting, and it's working wonders. I'd uh, love to share that with you. Just go to roofingmastery.com and schedule a discovery call there. This is Dylan McCabe with the Roofing Mastery Podcast, and I will catch you in the next episode. Hey.